Romans chapter 4 is a very exciting chapter, foundational chapter for your belief system, for your Christianity. And so we're going to study primarily four tonight, but let's end with uh, chapter three here. Read some things, studying the book of Romans, going somewhere with God. So open your heart up and believe that you can understand. Now, this, this first part that we've, we've in the book of Romans here is, is the theme is righteousness. Okay. The quest is righteousness, which means right standing with God. Uh, really righteousness is the pursuit of all humanity. Being right with your creator is the pursuit of all humanity. Uh, even though some people don't acknowledge that or do that really deep down, we all want a connection to God. We all want to know our creator. We all want to be accepted by our creator, which is what righteousness means, right standing with God. And that's why all pagans, of, all pagan religions of the world have been created because of this quest to be right with God. We have a conviction in our heart that we're not right with God. So the quest is, I want to get right with God. So can I do something to get there? Can I formulate a religion that as, allows me access to the divine? Can I have eternal life somehow? somehow? I recognize that this existence can't be it. So I must find a way to God. Well, that's the, the nature of us is to pursue him. Well, God didn't want to leave it up to you. So he gave us the answer. All right. So the whole idea is righteousness. Uh, one preacher said the search for righteousness is the parent of all pagan religions. Enwrapped within this word is the thing that all of humanity has craved to be right with God. Once you have righteousness, once you sense it, you'll be happy. Once you know that you're right with God, you'll be able to chill out. Have you ever had a friend tell you to chill out? Chill out, man. Once you know you're right with God, it won't be hard. Just chill out. That's a new definition of righteousness. Just chill out, dude. Righteousness allows you to relax and feel confident in your current situation. We've talked about it recently. It gives you boldness and courage and confidence, security. Righteousness gives you security. If I'm right with my dad, he, I'm safe. If I'm right with my heavenly father, same thing. I'm safe. We, I, I tell this story all the time about uh, stuff that happens on our on our uh, outreach days where we go out soul winning. Uh, and Paul had told me the story where he had led a group of teenagers, like four, four teenagers to the Lord. And as they walked off, either he or somebody else overheard them talking. And one teenager looked at the other as they walked off after receiving Christ. And his statement to his friends was, I feel safe now. That's an effect of righteousness. The effect of righteousness will be peace. Isn't that exciting? <laughs> so righteousness is extremely powerful and necessary. And that's really the discussion here that Paul is creating as he writes this letter. He's identifying this quest for righteousness. And it has to do with how before Christ, Israelites and even non-Israelites tried to obey in order to be righteousness. I mean, in order to be righteous, tried to follow the law in order to be accepted by God. And his argument is now that Christ has come, that is over, that no one becomes righteous by obeying laws. The only way to become righteous is by faith in Jesus Christ who did obey all the laws. So this is the beauty of Christianity, the mystery of Christianity and the foolishness of Christianity that rather than have to work it up and be perfect or good enough, uh, God just simply did it for us. That's the whole beauty of, it, of Christianity. And it's why so, so many people miss it. And it's why so many Christians, you know, still, even though they believe in Jesus, they still, it's hard to comprehend because we're familiar with a merit system. We even raise our kids that way. If you're good today, you get to eat the chocolate pie. 
And then what happens at the end of the day, whether they were good or not, guess what happens? They get to eat the chocolate pie. That's righteousness. Righteousness is even though I wanted you to be good and you weren't, I'm still giving you the chocolate pie because you're my, my child. That's righteousness. Very seldom do you withhold the good thing from your child just because their behavior wasn't perfect. Usually parents will rationalize and the, the, the mom and dad can argue about it. Well, he wasn't that good today. Yeah, but he was pretty good. Well, I guess you're right. Okay. See, that's how a good parent acts because their child has right standing with them. Same thing with God. You're righteous with God, whether your behavior was great or not. So anyway, that's the basis of this discussion. Let's read a couple of scriptures and see what Paul's trying to explain. Verse 19 says, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those that are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. The reason for the law was so that everybody could recognize they're all failures at it. The reason for the law was to make everybody guilty. Just like they put a speed limit, they put a speed uh, limit sign up on the, what does it do? It just tells everybody that you're over the speed limit. And then occasionally you look over and you see it and you slow down a bit. But has anybody ever obeyed all the speed limit signs? No. You're all failures at it, see? That's all the law does, it just shows you how failure you. What a failure you are. Verse 20, therefore by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight for, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So there's no justification Justification, if you see that word in, in the Bible, justified or justification is the same exact Greek word as righteous or righteousness. Same word. Just equals righteous. Justified equals made righteous. Justification equals righteousness. Same exact Greek word, just translated differently in different scriptures. Skip down to verse 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Verse 24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. Verse 27, where is boasting then? It's excluded. By what law? Of works? No, by the law of faith. Okay, what he's saying here is, so where, where do you get to boast in your being made righteous? Where do you get to boast? Do you get to boast because you've been pretty good? Do you get to brag because your flesh has done something? Does, any believe, does anybody get to boast that they are of a certain race? There's no boasting. Uh, if you recall back when Jesus gave the analogy, the parable, he said two men went up to the temple to pray. Remember, it was a Pharisee uh, and the other was a tax collector. Pharisee was a religious law keeper, law of Moses keeper. Tax collector was a heathen, uh, wasn't following the law. And the Pharisee stood up and prayed. Remember, it says he prayed with himself. That's really a problem. He prayed with himself. He said, God, I thank you that I'm not like most men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. That's the first problem is when we compare ourselves. Comparing ourselves is basically relative righteousness, meaning mine's pretty good, better than yours. I hope I'm okay. But you hear it all the time. People comparing this. First thing they say is, well, I had never killed anybody. Are you right with God? Well, I don't know. I hadn't lied too much lately. Well, I'm not, I'm not bad. Like you start talking about somebody sinning or getting drunk or something. Oh, I don't do any of that. That's called relative righteousness, which is unacceptable. Then he says, he says, I'm not like these other men. Then he says, I fast twice a week and I give tithes of everything that I make. Well, fasting is part of a good lifestyle and, and tithing is part of a good lifestyle, but he's using it to brag. He's boasting in his righteous behavior. As a believer, don't do that. Well, I really, I, I, well, I, yeah, I don't want to hear it. That's called self-righteousness. 
That's called works righteousness. Some people say works righteousness is opposed to faith righteousness. Or we could say righteousness which is by faith alone versus righteousness which is by my behavior. Am I counted right with God because of my behavior or because of my belief? And this is what's so important to understand. It's by belief only. It's by faith only that I'm righteous and not at all by my behavior. Therefore, my behavior does not damage my righteousness, nor does it increase my righteousness. Meaning I can come sit next to my wife, whether my behavior is great or whether my behavior needs help. Can I, can I come sit by you regardless? <laughs> Once you, she said, she said, don't use me. Once you understand how God allows you to come close, whether your behavior is good or bad, it'll help you start treating people like that. It's part of us becoming like God. It's why you need to understand how important this is. One reason why you need to understand how important this is. The other reason is so that you can approach God properly. Until you understand that you are righteous with God without behavior, you'll never be able to come into the throne room and pray right. You'll never be able to access God with confidence until you know he has already declared you acceptable. Regardless of last week or last month or what you know is in your soul. Regardless of that, he still allows you close. Now, if, if you've got garbage all piled up inside you, you're not going to have the strength and confidence to come close. That's the danger of you not living right and it's the danger of you not understanding righteousness or forgiveness is that you feel too weighed down by sin and dirt to approach a holy God. So you need to understand the blood of Jesus. You need to understand righteousness. You, you need some word in you, some scripture in you, so you have some faith to come near God. And you need some word in you so that your behavior is better. You need to simply engraft the word into you so that you live right. That in itself will allow you closeness to God. Because you're not dealing with all this dirt when you come near. All right. <clears throat> so there is no boasting. And this, is, this was a big problem with the Jews receiving Jesus Christ. Is that they felt they were God's chosen people. And they were. But they felt like they were chosen because of their superior morality. They looked at the heathen and said, we're not like them. We have the law of God. They didn't realize that the law of God was proof that they're guilty. And what you're going to find is Paul's going to explain, listen, uh, you're no different than the Gentile. They're keeping some of the laws without even having a law. You're not keeping all the laws that you should be keeping. Y'all are the same. And you both need to be justified by faith alone. That's the premise of this next part we're going to be reading here. So let's read here verse 1, chapter 4, or, or verse 31 I'm going to deal with later at the end of tonight. Uh, it says, do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. I'm going to explain that in just a moment. Uh, but first I want to talk about this conflict between how do you become right with God? Verse 4, what then shall we say that Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh? Well, nothing. That's the rhetorical answer. Verse two, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And so this is where you see uh, Abraham comes into it. So Abraham becomes our example of getting to God. Abraham is called the father of faith. You're going to see that scripture. He is our example of faith. He's our example of righteousness by faith. It's not Israel that we follow. It's not Jacob, his grandson that we follow in the steps of. We follow in the steps of Abraham, grandpa. He's the one that showed the way to God by believing God only. Not by obeying God, but by believing God. So his belief is what allowed God to stamp him 
as righteousness. Abraham is now right. Stamped his heart, stamped his life. He's mine because he believed me. And this is where people who read the Bible recognize, you know what? There's something about this believing that pleases God. Like in order to please God, I'm going to have to believe him first. What's the big deal? Well, it's just something special about it. To be believed, God called that righteous. Uh, Maybe we should, uh, well, we're going to go back and read some things in Genesis so you'll see it. Um, Verse 3, though, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. This is where uh, God was telling Abraham, you're going to have a a child and you're going to be the father of many nations. And Abraham's like, look, I, I don't have, I'm old, my wife's old, we don't have any babies. Can't my servant just be the one? Eliezer, can't my servant be the one that you give me this promise through? God says, no, somebody from your own bowels is going to be heir. So you're going to have to have a baby. You can't just have your servant do it. Uh, Verse four, now to him who works, the wages are counted, excuse me, not counted as grace, but as debt. Uh, But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. So see what that says. Uh, To him who works, like if I was going to try to do a good work in order to be righteous, then it's like I'm saying, God, I have earned it. It's a wage. Like if your employee works, you pay wages. They have to work in order to get the payment. So if, if, if that was how it was with God, then, then he owes us something for being good. Does God owe you something for being good? Okay, that's pretty simple to see because we know how, how, how good our goodness is. Well, then quit going to God saying stuff like, now God, I, I went to church last month. I need a new car. God, I've been reading the Bible. I, I need my family to change. God, you know that I've given you my life. I, I, I need an answer to Don't try to bring yourself and your works into the prayer. What you're doing is you're saying, I've worked for this. Pay up, God. But how many people have you heard that, that God, people tell me, all the, I've, been, I've been fasting. I've been fasting for three weeks. Okay. You want me to get some money out? Or, or, or are you saying God, you get some money from God? What are you saying? That you did something, now you get some earnings? Okay, so if you wage, if you, if you expect wages, what you're saying is there's debt that God owes us. So to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace or as a gift, but debt. But to him who does not work, don't try to work for God's blessing, but believe on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. So rather than your works being what God looks at to determine if you're right or righteous, it's your faith that he's looking for. Make sense? Okay, I know I've spent a little time on this. I'm trying to drive out that wrong thinking so that you rest your faith on the fact that your belief in God is enough. And notice what he says here. He justifies the ungodly. God justified you when you were ungodly. He makes the ungodly righteous. He calls the ungodly righteous. He justifies the ungodly. So that's your target. You find an ungodly person so God can turn them righteous. Don't ever look at a dirt ball and think, oh my gosh, I don't know why he's so, they're so, they're so such sinners. What about you? Weren't you one of them? Well, I was never that bad. Oh, okay. We'll put you in the Pharisee category and you can talk to the Lord about it. See how weird Christians have done this for centuries. In church, Christians have done this, not in this church, but in other churches. 
Christians have looked across the aisle and said, I just can't believe that they're dressing like that. Wearing that makeup and stuff. You might need a little makeup. I mean, there's some modesty that we expect for new Christians. You, you'll learn. You'll learn. <laughs> Even the men. You, you get saved out of the world day one. You don't have enough right clothes. Your wardrobe changes over time. As you walk with God, you start feeling like, you know, it's not appropriate for me to quite look like the world in, this way, in that way and expose myself. And so basically when you get saved... Over time, you're going to show less skin. It's just a fact. You'll see. You'll see. We don't have a dress code around here, so don't, don't expect everybody to be dressing perfect around here. All right? Especially new Christians and even some older Christians. They're not always going to dress right. So you just leave them alone. Don't be judging across the aisle. Be, be cool with that. We'll, God will get to them somehow. I better, I better get out of that. I better get out of that room. But just so you know, we don't harp on dress code. We don't harp on this outward stuff like that. The, whole, the, the Lord will take care of you. If you're serious with God and want to walk with God, your conscience will convict you, and you'll, you'll make changes as necessary. Just be willing to as he shows you things. That's all, that's all he expects. That's all we expect. But to him, verse 5, who does not work but believes on him. Everybody say, believes on him. Believe. Say, I believes on him. I believes on him. And that's enough. This is where all your miracles come from is believing on him. It's where all your blessing comes. It's where all the good stuff comes is believing on him. Who justifies the ungodly, your faith is counted for righteousness. Verse 6, just as David also described the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. David quoted this over in Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. So David caught it too. The, the, the way that you're called righteous with God is not by your behavior. It's by faith. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute or, or count sin or reckon sin to you. Doesn't put it on your account. Do you feel like that? Here's a challenge for you. Does everybody in the room feel like God has not put your sins on a list? Listen, it's, it's hard to feel like that sometimes till you learn. It's hard to, to, to know that you've done some wrong things, but that it's not on a list that God's holding over your head. He has an imputed sin. Blessed is the, happy is the man to whom the Lord has not held the ordinances over. Colossians says Jesus nailed the ordinances to the cross. There's something real special in that, that you need to sense it and feel it. Praise the Lord. We're talking promise believing rather than law keeping. And when we say faith, we're talking about reliance on God, just total reliance on God. Total reliance on God for what? For your righteousness. Total reliance on God for your salvation. Relying on God for your salvation rather than you trying to work for it. Uh, go to Galatians. Let's get a little feedback from his other letter just to let you see that there's connection between these letters because it's all the same gospel, same truth. Galatians chapter two, I'm just gonna read through some of these uh, just to clarify and just to kind of confirm, let every word be established by two or three witnesses. <clears throat> chapter two, verse 16, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. See that? By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. What are the works of the law? The Ten Commandments plus the other 603 commandments. 
By the Ten Commandments, no flesh is justified. Y'all agree with that? Let's go ahead and say it. Say, say this out loud. Say, the Ten Commandments makes nobody righteous. No flesh is justified by the Ten Commandments. Nobody's righteous because they obeyed the Ten Commandments. Is it hard to say that? To some, it's very hard to say that. We, we preach in some churches that have never heard that before. So it's like the Holy Grail that you've taken away from. Like, oh, they thought that was the pinnacle of Christianity, pinnacle of God's belief system. It's not. It's not. First of all, you've not obeyed the Ten Commandments, therefore you're not righteous. If that's the way you're going to treat it, you're not righteous. I've obeyed. You don't even know the Ten Commandments. You couldn't even list the Ten Commandments right now. And you think you've obeyed them? And then don't you recall that Jesus actually enhanced the Ten? One of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not murder. Jesus said, he changed it. He said, you've heard that it was said, you shall not murder. But I say unto you, that if you hate your brother without a cause, you're a murderer. To hate and to despise and to cut somebody off is just as bad as physically doing it. Adultery, I've never, I've never, I've never, I've never, if you've lusted in your heart to, for somebody that's not yours, uh, you've, you've committed adultery. Idolatry, I've never bowed down to, no, New Testament says idolatry is being a hedonist. Idolatry is sitting down to eat and rising up to play. Idolatry is when you uh, treat amusement and pleasure and fun more highly than God. Americans have a huge problem with idolatry. This whole culture around the world is stuck on stuff other than God. So let's not play games here. You've not obeyed the Ten Commandments. Therefore, if that's your basis for being righteous, you ain't righteous. You need help. That's the whole thing. We all need help because nobody obeyed the law. Everybody needs an answer from heaven. Or we can say everybody needs a gift from God. God I've blown it. Could you please let me in anyway? Yep. The gift, it's a gift from God. Righteousness is a gift from God. You cannot earn it. You cannot improve it. You cannot become more righteous and you cannot become less righteous. Once you believed in Jesus, you are perfectly righteous. And and the grade of your righteousness is the same grade as Jesus' righteousness. You got it? You have to esteem this gift of righteousness so highly that you never deviate from knowing he's my father. I'm his child. I know I need to work on my behavior. I'm planning to do that. I'm repenting. I need help. I'm headed that direction. Holy Spirit, transform me and change me. Give me power. I'm doing it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to serve God. I'm going to be better. I'm, my behavior is going to improve. But that's not the cause of your righteousness. Okay, chapter 3, verse 14. That the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Keep that in mind, that the blessing of Abraham comes upon non-Jewish people. Verse 15, brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it's only a man's covenant. If, if it's confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Now, to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. So when you see that the promise was given to Abraham and his seed, the seed is Christ. The promise was to Abraham and all who believe in Jesus by faith. And this I say that the law, which was 430 years later, see the law came long after Abraham's promise and Abraham's righteousness. 430 years later cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before with Abraham by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. Verse 18, for if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise, 
but God gave it to Abraham by promise. So the way we inherit the kingdom of God is not through the law of Moses, which is not through the Ten Commandments and the other hundreds. It's through Abraham by faith in Christ. What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions. Till the seed, that's Christ, notice how it's capitalized. Is it capitalized in your Bible? Till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was appointed through angels by the hands of a mediator. Skip down to verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you're Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So the moment that you received Jesus Christ, you became Abraham's descendant. Not in the flesh, you became Abraham's seed in the spirit. And an heir according to the promise. So all those promises throughout all the Old Testament, you became heir as soon as you received Jesus. And that's what God meant when he said, Abraham, he goes, I'm going to give you something to look at and establish your faith on. Go out and look at the stars. See if you can number them. That's how many is going to come from you. He wasn't talking about natural descendants. Now, if you go out in Houston, you count stars, you might be able to count about 100. Because the, the glow of the lights diminish the beauty of all the sky. But if you go out in the country, if you go out where there's no light in the city... You can see so many stars with the naked eye. And it's, it's, it's a lot bigger, which is, they didn't have any electricity. Did you know that? They didn't have electricity in Abraham's day. So he got to see all the stars and the sand of the sea. So there's your other analogy. That's how many uh, people came from his seed. Or that's how the multitude was counted for his seed. So it's all believers in Christ that made up that multitude, not just a natural race of people. Look at chapter four here, verse nine. But after you have known God or rather known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid for you lest I've labored for you in vain. What's he saying? He's saying, listen, you're still trying to obey the, the law and all of the seasons and feasts and days and months. He said, I'm afraid for you. Why, why are you... You got saved. Why are you turning back to the ceremonial law that was given under the law of Moses? Because I'm afraid for you. King James says, I'm afraid of you. Lest I've labored for you in vain. Listen, I'm afraid of some of those people too. They're pretty legalistic. They're, they're beating a drum about stuff that has no implication on their spiritual life whatsoever. When you meet together, Saturday or Sunday, what you eat, what you don't eat, what ceremonies do you observe? What Jewish calendar days do you observe? We're more spiritual because we toot the horn on this day and this day. I'm afraid of them. And I'm also afraid for them. You'll see why in a minute. Paul was very serious about this. He said, you're making, vo you're making faith void. You're, you're fa you've fallen from grace if you're going to do these things. So it's a severe matter. It's not just, oh, yeah, y'all do whatever you want to do. Not if you want instruction from the Bible, but I'll preach this sometimes in other places and I'll talk about how we're not under the law of Moses and the ceremonial and civil laws that give given to Israel, we don't really have any part in. And so don't put your faith in any kind of shofar blowing. As soon as I say that, man, you can feel the tension in the ears. Who's going to take away our shofar? And then I got to tell him, listen, listen, you can blow your horn. You can blow your horn. We got horns. We like horns. Whether it's a curly horn or whether it's a trumpet or a tuba or a trombone, don't matter what kind of horn, you can blow any horn you want to. Just don't act like there's a spiritual connotation behind it. They blew the shofar to defeat enemies. That was the rally cry for God to come and defeat the armies and such. No, no, no. We don't defeat the devil with any horn blowing. You don't get any extra power in a church service by horn blowing. 
So I have to give the disclaimer to them, then I have to explain these things to them. If I'm going to take their horn away, I need to explain why, right? I just don't want our faith to be in something that brings no result. No, no, the only way you're going to whip the devil is by faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in his name, confidence in his name, power of the blood, authority in the believer from somebody who knows how to do it. That's how you take care of the devil in your life, not by blowing your horn all over the neighborhood. I did a little teaching on this in some context. When service, a young lady comes up to me, she said, but, but sometimes I like to go out on my porch and blow my shofar. Can I keep doing that? I'm like, yeah, go ahead. Whatever you want to do. But it's, I feel the same way. Paul's saying, listen, you're, you're going backward. You got saved. Now you're going backward to some of these things that do nothing. They were just symbols for the future. Uh, okay, chapter 5, verse 1. Stand, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. And in this context, talking about the law. Freed from the bondage of the law. Amen. Stand fast in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. So those who think flesh circumcision does something because it did in the Old Testament, are wrong. And if you do that, thinking that you're going to become more right with God or get a second covenant made with God through flesh circumcision, Christ profits you nothing. So this tradition that came from the Israelites and carried on into America is unnecessary for any spiritual connotation. There is no spiritual uh, blessing from flesh circumcision. Y'all all feel like that? You understand that? Now, from a national standpoint and a culture standpoint, it's a tradition. Just don't attach any spiritual connotation. There is no spiritual uh, blessing from it. You understand? Because if you do it thinking that it's going to give you extra blessing, Christ profits you. Nothing. You can't have both. You don't get to have Christ and the law keeping. You can pick and do your best with the law or you can have Christ. Verse three, and I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he's a debtor to keep the whole law. So those who think, well, you know, I do a few good Jewish things, makes me a little bit better. No, now you got to do them all. If you do Jewish things in order to be more spiritual or more right with God, then now you got to do them all. Now we got to check your dietary plan. Now we got to check, you know, how you, well, I'm not even going to go there. We got a lot of checking to do. Verse four, you have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. Did you realize that I didn't write this? I can tell, listen, when I'm preaching some of this, and especially in other places, you know, in here, there's probably 50 of you that haven't heard this from me. Uh, but when I preach it in other places, I have to remind them, I, I, it's, not, it's not me. Don't be mad at me. I'm just reading you the Bible, trying to make sense of the Bible that you've had in possession all these years. What it's supposed to do is help you get untangled from the yoke of bondage. Hallelujah. Oh, Wow. Wow, Christ is way more special than I thought. Wow, all of my salvation and righteousness is dependent on Jesus alone and nothing else. That gives me power. It gives me freedom, but it gives me power. Then I can not walk around feeling guilty for all the little things that I'm wondering. I don't know. They told me that I was supposed to light a candle. Seven candles. Menorah. I think it's called menorah. Isn't it important? Aren't we supposed to light that on special day? No. Forget the candles. Or fine, you can have a hundred menorahs all lit in your house. Just don't act like there's something spiritual to it. Praise the Lord. All right, there's more to it, but let's go back to Romans. The whole book of Galatians was actually written because people were mistaking 
Christ versus law. They kept going back. Gloriously saved. The whole book of Galatians was written because people got saved and filled with the Spirit and then turned backward toward the law and said, yeah, but, but I think maybe we need to get circumcised and maybe we need to obey some of these things to be a little bit better. And so we have the book of Houstonians. We have the book of Americans today because same things happening all over the world, really. Other countries, same thing. Other countries fall in suit with, with some Americans that, anyway, okay. Romans chapter four, verse nine. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only? That'd be the Jewish people. Or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. What is he talking about then? We're going to go back and read the, the chronology of it in just a moment. But he's saying that Abraham got called righteous while he was uncircumcised. So it's not circumcision that makes you righteous. Circumcision was the proof of covenant long after, but Abraham was righteous by faith before he was circumcised. Verse 11, and he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith. That's all that was, which he had while still being uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. And the father of circumcision to those not only who are of the circumcision, but also who walk in the steps of the faith, which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. For the promise that he would be heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. Notice that. If those who are of the law, who's that? The Jewish people. If those who are of the law are heirs of this great promise and kingdom of God, then faith is made void. Like if the Jewish people can still inherit the kingdom, we don't need faith. Which means we do need faith. That means that through the law, there are no heirs. No Jewish person receives the covenant, nor salvation, nor righteousness Amen. by law keeping. Amen. So any Jew that does not believe in the Messiah is not saved. We're going to prove this. You're going to see it several times throughout the book of Romans. There is no separate covenant. There is no two ways to be right with God. It's either one or the other. Either you have Christ and no law or you have law and no Christ. What you'll find is if you get this straight, Jesus will be lifted higher. His value will be more clear. Uh, just so you know, he's everything to God. He's God's only begotten son. The most precious gift he could possibly give, to, give was his own son. Jesus is everything. He has preeminence in everything. Israel has preeminence in nothing. Middle East has preeminence in nothing. Right. Bloodline has preeminence in nothing. Amen. There is no more genealogies. Amen. No more genealogies is necessary for spiritual things. No matter where you come from, no matter whose blood you got, don't be trying to trace your lineage back to find out if you're more spiritual than the next guy. Oh no, you've fallen from grace. Now you can be interested in genealogy and enjoy all the history of your family and other people's families, but don't put any spiritual connotation in it. The only thing spiritual passed through generations would be belief, not blood. Like if your great, great grandpa was a Christian and imparted Christianity into his family and then now it's passed through and my grandma and my mom and now me, that's wonderful. We praise God for that, but don't act like bloodline had anything to do with it. Faith has, all, faith has everything to do with it. <clears throat> praise the Lord. So Abraham is the father of us all. 
When you go to heaven and you're going to meet Abraham, you will feel like he's the father of my faith. Like he's the first human who was counted righteous by faith. I'm one of his. Remember that song? Father and many sons, many sons had father Abraham. I am one of them and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Right hand, and then it goes left hand. Father Abraham had many sons. So let's just praise the Lord. Right foot, left foot, right hand, left hand. Neck out, turn around, sit down. See those songs that kids sing, man, they stick with you. I don't even know how I know that song. <laughs> All right, now let me, let's go back and look at this. Uh... Oh, man, it's such good stuff. I think we can do it here. All right. Notice back verse 31, chapter 3. 331 says, because now we've talked about how you become righteous, okay? And now you find this scripture, though, it's kind of inserted in here. It's like throws a little curveball. It's like, do we make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. You see that? You see how it's like, wait a second. He's been, he's been saying the law is, is not necessary for righteousness, but now he's saying we establish it? Glad you asked. First of all, you recall... Well, let me just run through five reasons uh, why this is true. Christianity, listen, Christianity, we can say faith in Jesus Christ establishes the law. Just don't think ceremonial law or civil law. There were three different types of laws given in the law of Moses. One was moral law, which is how we treat each other and God. The other were ceremonial laws where you get the feasts, the days, the months, the seasons for Israel. And then there's civil law where you get all of the cultural civil laws like eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, stone the rebellious sons, kill the witches, uh, all the rules for prisoners and uh, cities of refuge and stuff like that. So no longer do you see any civil or ceremonial laws in the New Testament. Not one civil or ceremonial law passed through the cross. But all the moral laws did. So when he says establish the law, he's talking about the moral side of the law, which makes perfect sense. Since Jesus added two top commands, love God and love your neighbor. So it has to be in the love God, love your neighbor category to count. So here, we establish the law by Christianity. Number one, by recognizing Christ as the subject of all of its rites and ceremonies. Christ is the subject of anything we do, it's Jesus is the center. Remember in the, on the road to Emmaus, Jesus was talking to the two guys, and it says, and he opened up the scriptures and showed them all things prophesied about him from, from the Old Testament says that all things must be fulfilled concerning him through the law of Moses and the prophets. That was number one, how he, how he established the law. Then you see number two, Jesus fulfilled the law. People have said that many times. Well, you can't throw out the law. Jesus said, I didn't come to destroy the law, I came to fulfill it. He did fulfill it. That was his plan, to be perfect under the law, to obey perfectly all the law of Moses as the first human to ever do so. Jesus said, I didn't come to destroy the law, uh, but to fulfill. Till heaven and earth pass away, not one, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all fulfilled. He did it. He did it. He's not telling you to do it because you can't do it. We've already seen the proof. There's nobody that can be justified by it. Nobody can fulfill it. It's to prove that you're all guilty. So there's no way he's telling us to obey every jot and tittle of the law. He was saying he had to. Uh, turn with me real quick to Romans 10. Romans 10, 
Verse 1, Paul says, we're going to read this in more detail later. I just wanted to bring it up. Romans 10.1, my brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. So he's not telling Israel to obey the law and try to squeak in. He's saying, I want them to be saved for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. All these Pharisees and all these Jewish folks that thought they were okay because they, they were the covenant people for a season. He says, they don't have knowledge. They need new knowledge about Christ. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. See that? Everybody say that out loud. Say, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. You follow me? See, Jesus fulfilled the law and ended it for righteousness. Not for morality. He didn't end the law for what's right and wrong, but he ended it for you being accepted by God. That's why we still obey God, sure. He didn't end it for obedience, he ended it for righteousness. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Hallelujah. Look at Romans 8. Romans chapter 8. Verse 3, for what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Listen, it's only Christians who can fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. All of the moral righteous commands, we're the only ones who can do it. Why? Because we're the only ones who do it from our heart. If you're not saved, you only do it on the outside. I'll prove that to you. Go to Hebrews chapter 8. What's supposed to happen, you're supposed to get born again. God calls you, accounts you, imputes to you righteous. Labels you right. You receive Jesus, you're righteous. And then your heart is born again, opened up to God. And he gets to come in there and put righteousness inside you. Rather than just give you a rule book, he puts it inside you. Your conscience wakes up to God. You know right from wrong. And here's what Hebrews says. Verse 6, Hebrews 8, 6. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he's also a mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. For if that first covenant, that's the old covenant, had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant. And I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I'll put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest of them. For I'll be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds I'll remember no more. That's a tenet of the new covenant. He doesn't remember our sins. Old covenant, he remembered their sins every year. They had to re-atone for their sins every single year. In that, he says, a new covenant, he's made the first obsolete. Now what's becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Old covenant law, obsolete for righteousness. Not for morality, but for righteousness. So this is how we start seeing verse 31, chapter Romans 3:31. We establish the law by having the righteous requirement of it put in our heart. This is where we're going to be even more righteous than any Old Testament saint by our behavior. 
You're supposed to get born again and changed on the inside with the word of God written in you and your behavior is going to be more holy than anybody else. That always goes over real big. That is the challenge from the new covenant. That's the challenge from the cross of Jesus Christ. That now that now that you received the gift, live up to it. Now that you received the gift and the power to do it, now, now exemplify Christ in your life. And we'll give you a lifetime to do it. So the just demands of the law can only be fulfilled by Christians. No Jewish person, no old covenant person, no circumcised in the flesh person only can fulfill the righteous demands of the law. It's impossible. Praise the Lord. Let's read a little bit more here. Verse 15. Or verse 14 again, for if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void. The promise made of no effect because the law brings about wrath. For where there's no law, there's no transgression. Like if there wasn't a speed limit sign, there wouldn't be a ticket following. Verse 16, therefore it is of faith that it might be according to grace so that the promise might be sure to all the seed. Not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham who is the father of us all. As it is written, I've made you a father of many nations in the presence of him who he believed, God, who gives life to the dead and calls things which do not exist as though they did, who, contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations. According to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead. Since he is about 100 years old, the deadness of Sarah's womb, he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what he had promised he was also able to perform, and therefore was accounted to him for righteousness. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for us also. That whole thing was written for us also. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I know that's a, a, that's a mouthful. It's a wonderful mouthful. Now we'll dissect some of this uh, next week. Let me close with this scripture here over in Titus. If you'll turn to Titus with me, kind of try to wrap up this righteousness by works versus righteousness by faith conflict. And listen, it has been a conflict. How many of you were alive in 2012? How many of you were walking with God in 2012? How many of you are trying to sort things out in 2012 when this whole grace controversy hit the scene? On one hand, because people needed to understand that they were made righteous by God, by faith. And on the other hand, there was conflict because people were saying, we're so free, it doesn't matter how we live our lives. Both of those are, wait, I don't know how I said the first one. There's a, there's a middle ground here where you have to understand we are made righteous by faith alone and we live a right life by command and because it's right. So here's how you see uh, the Holy Spirit put it together. And it, Paul said it many ways, different times. Um, basically, every other page of the Bible has uh, how you're supposed to live in it. Did you realize that? That we're not saying, hey, you're saved and righteous and just do what you want to do now. No, you're saved and righteous. Now read the next page. You're saved and made right with God and it was a free gift and you can't improve that gift, but you can live it. And so there's so much instruction in the New Testament about how Christians are supposed to live. So these other people, they were just, they were bad people. There was a whole group of Christians that said, doesn't matter how we live, we're saved, don't judge me. You're just a bad person if you live like that. 
okay? You're not a sincere Christian. I acknowledge you believe in Jesus, so I guess you're my brother, but that's pathetic. And if you read the Bible, that's how the Holy Spirit through Paul says it. I mean, that's how strict it is. Anyway, so here's how, here's how you put them together and understand the difference. Titus chapter two, uh, three, Titus chapter three, verse three, for we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. He's talking about before being saved. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we've done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. This is how you get saved. It's by mercy. It's by faith in Christ. He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. That's how we're saved. And that's how you stay saved. Whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Wonderful, right? That's how we've always celebrated Christianity. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These are good and profitable. These things are good and profitable to men. See that term? Christians are supposed to do good works. We are called to holiness. Follow peace and holiness without which no man will see the Lord. You'll never see the Lord in your life if you don't live in peace and holiness. There's a, there's a reason for these things. But I just wanted you to see the word works is used twice in the same paragraph or same uh, scripture reference. And it denotes two different things. Not by works of righteousness that you've done. That's not how you're saved. But then you still are called to good works. Don't you feel that? Don't you want to do something for God? You can only do something good for God if you're righteous. Everybody trying to do something good for God without being righteous, it's falling flat. You can feed as many people as you want to at the soup kitchen. It's not going to get you any points. It's not going to get you saved at all. It doesn't get you closer to salvation at all. But if you are righteous, if you are a believer in Christ, then you're going to want to do good things, whether it's soup kitchen or uh, soccer tournament outreach or serving at church or helping a person down the street or doing something good for somebody, you're going to want to. So if you don't want to do any good things, you might want to check up on your righteousness. Amen? Like, for, for real, before I, before I had committed my life to the Lord, uh, I didn't care to do a whole lot of good works for people. Just personally, I was just serving myself. Didn't you just serve yourself? Like 90% of your life was just serving yourself. That's the nature of a sinner. The nature of a Christian is to serve one another. Simple as that. Amen. All right. Praise the Lord. Everybody happy? You want to go another hour? Praise the Lord. <clears throat> Thank you, Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. All right. So. This type of a teaching could cause you to get delivered right there in your chair. I mean, any, any, any message could, but becoming right with God, knowing that you're right with God or learning of your righteousness is one of those things that's supposed to bring you right close to God. Okay. So use that. Listen, use that. If you got prayed for on Sunday, settle it. I don't know where you're at with it. We're going to try to take some testimonies on Sunday. Settle it. Sunday, this past Sunday, settled it for you. You got prayed for, that's it. Settled it. The symptom and the, and the outside circumstance doesn't decide anything for you. No, you settled it. You got ministered to by God. 
through a person, but by the Spirit, your minute, that's it, that settles it. God's will has come and will come to pass. And you can move on in life. Amen? Praise the Lord. How many of you feel more righteous right now? Raise your hand if you feel a little bit more righteous than you did coming in. When I, when I say feel, I don't mean in your flesh. I mean in your spirit. You, you feel closer, don't you? Yes. Didn't the word of God prove it to you? Yes. Didn't, don't you see now how God wants us to learn these things and know these things deeper so that you can feel it, so that you can live it? Now you'll have more strength tomorrow. Amen. Now you can go to bed feeling cleaner. Matter of fact, if you don't feel clean, let's help you right now. Sometimes people still don't feel clean. They've heard the truth. They acknowledge the truth, but the guilt of whatever they're dealing with is, is too heavy. Let's deal with it right now. This is how you deal with your guilt. All right. You acknowledge you've done something wrong. You don't have to raise your hand, but anybody feel guilty for anything at all whatsoever? Let's deal with it right now. If you're a believer in Christ, he says, confess your sin to him and he's faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you. So just say it out loud and everybody can say it with you. Say, I've sinned. I'm sorry about that, Lord. Restore me. Forgive me. Cleanse me. Thanks, God. Thank you so much. Amen. Open your eyes real wide. Take a deep breath. Lift your hands up. And say, now I'm clean. Thanks, God. Now I'm clean. Thanks, God. Now I'm clean. I'm not guilty. Thanks for not holding it against me. I'm clean, clean, clean. Praise the Lord, I'm clean. He didn't impute my sin to me. Thanks, God. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's how you handle it, okay? Some of you are dealing with big stuff you, you remember. Others of you are dealing with little stuff that you feel like you've neglected God. It'll gnaw at people. I found that that sometimes is the main reason why people can't get a miracle. Just the little nagging things you know you should have done, didn't do. They call them sins of neglect or sins of omission. You can commit sins and you can omit obedience. Anyway. Praise the Lord. Is everybody happy? Yeah. All right. Glory to God. Thank you for joining Pastors Chaz and Joni today from Houston Faith Church. If you're looking for a good home church in Houston, Texas, we'd like to invite you to be our guest anytime. What you'll find is the Houston Faith Church is highly committed to the Word of God, the love of God, and the Spirit-filled life and ministry that Jesus expects. We know that everyone wants to make a difference in this life and that the great commission of the Lord Jesus Christ is the main thing for all of us. You'll find your purpose here and grow strong in faith at Houston Faith Church. Find more faith-building resources on our YouTube channel or subscribe to our free audio podcast. You can also connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. See you soon.